Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show did you know that the average person who escaped the World Trade Center during 9-11 sat at their cubicle on average for a full six minutes after the building was hit? I think to myself, I would leave the building immediately. But when you're in the moment, your brain sort of goes a little crazy. And I know this because I actually was at or right outside the World Trade Center and I saw the first plane hit it. And your brain does, when it sees something so life-threatening, disastrous, and unusual. Your brain does weird things. So what kind of person survives a disaster? What kind of person did leave the World Trade Center as opposed to stay there? The guest we have on now, Amanda Ripley, who wrote a book called The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why? She was telling me that the average plane crash is actually immensely survivable and she explains why but what kind of people actually leave the plane when after it crashes and what kind of people stay in the plane what kind of people leave when there's a fire and what kind of people sort of don't even recognize what's going on enough to leave and i and i think this applies to more than just extreme disasters this might apply to relationships what kind of person leaves an abusive relationship and what kind of person stays there and again it's useful to know this information it's not just about surviving disasters it's about taking into account very real risks that happen every day in our lives or could happen and being 
ready enough that you could survive a disaster. So Amanda Ripley's book was called The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why? And Amanda explains the rest. I'm so excited to be talking about this. Thanks for agreeing to come on again. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So the unthinkable, such an interesting topic. Who survives when disaster strikes and why? First off, Amanda, how come you wrote this book? Did you survive a disaster? Uh, (laughs) So to speak. uh, I was covering a lot of disasters for Time Magazine sort of by accident. And then it became like my beat. So I was, you know, covering 9-11 and the anthrax attacks and hurricanes. And I started to find that people were telling me these incredible, surprising, interesting, sometimes hopeful things about having survived a disaster. And none of those things were making it into the normal stories or the kind of, you know, policy debates about how to prepare for terrorist attacks or hurricanes. So, um, you know, it's it was just it was partly a way to kind of preserve my own sanity, but also a way to to learn from people who had experienced really, really sudden uh, life or death ordeals and had things they wanted uh, the rest of us to know. You found some common characteristics among people who survived, like for instance, a nine eleven or a plane accident or you know these other catastrophic situations, and you found things in common. But you said just a second ago, it, you needed to preserve your sanity. Why, why is that? Like, why were the stories so extreme that you were like a doctor returning from ER at the end of the day? Like, what, what was going on in your head when you were hearing all these stories? Yeah, I mean, I find that typically in, in the news coverage of disasters, we do like one of three categories of stories. So there's the stories of suffering, right? Then there's the stories of uh, blame, and stories of fear, so predicting the next <laughs> disaster. Uh, those are important, all those three things, but after a while, it does kind of wear on you. And I found that to do justice to people's stories of loss and suffering and blame, you really had to feel it at some level, at least I did, you know. And I could only do that for so many years before it felt like I just couldn't keep. <laughs> Uh, going through that, yeah. It's interesting because you you mentioned one statistic uh, in in the book where people in California, for instance, uh, are are worried about earthquakes even more than floods, even though there are more floods, they should be more worried about floods than earthquakes. And so maybe because earthquakes were in the media more and California is known for earthquakes. uh, Do you think when you were covering so many disasters, that every time you walked in a building, you looked for all the exits just in case there was a terrorist attack, or every time you went on a plane, you made sure you were sitting near the uh, escape hatch? Like, were you were you getting overly prepared for disasters? Uh, my husband would say yes in some situations. Like, I was hypervigilant in certain situations. I would say <laughs> that I was probably more attuned to uh, low probability, high consequence events or high probability events, right? So, for example, I became much more worried about car accidents than I had been before because, the, you know, the probability is just so high comparatively, but also floods, to your point. Like, flooding is not something I thought about ever. 
Um, and so there were things that I feel like I got smarter about, but I, it is also hard to turn that off. You know, like I remember once coming back from, uh, I was, I think I was covering Hurricane Katrina and then Rita, and I came back, I was living in DC and my mother-in-law was visiting. So, you know, I'll never live this down, but there was some extreme firework event at the Kennedy Center by some kind of Chinese fireworks, uh, performance group that sort of had never happened before. And it, so you suddenly heard late at night these unexpected you know, explosions that felt very close, and it was not July 4th. So I just got up very calmly, grabbed my stuff. I'm like, we're going. I don't know what this is. <laughs> and uh, and you know, I just had a kind of default for action for a while. And my mother-in-law, we woke her up, and she was like, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> That's funny. And so I'll never live that one down, but. So no, but you know that kind of represents a lot of the things that were happening in the book. As some people go in denial, some people take action quickly, and and it's interesting. I bet you if you do a word search for the word thud in your book, there's probably a lot of it. Like every airplane, there was a sudden thud, <laughs> and then after that, like now if you hear a thud in an airplane, are you immediately looking for your parachute or? Um. Yeah, no, that's true. I'm actually doing that right now. I, I've got four hits so far in the. So you're not wrong. That's a lot. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, four thuds in one book. You know, the airplane, I actually got much more comfortable on, which is interesting because one thing I learned that most people don't know is that most plane crashes are survivable. So even if in the very really? unlikely event that your plane goes down, it's important what you do. Because most plane crashes, they end up on the ground and on fire, and you have very little time before the smoke becomes too toxic to survive. So the whole trick is getting off quickly. And uh, there are certain like tricks that flight attendants have learned and others. So you know that that kind of anytime you can give yourself a sense of agency, even if it's a touch delusional, that does reduce the dread. <laughs> Uh, the amount of fear that you might have because you want a little fear but not too much. So, so yeah, plane crashes uh, <laughs> bothered me less. I guess the average plane crash doesn't like explode in the air and right. everyone dies. Like they must like an engine is going out and they have to land on top of a forest and then and so the plane's all smashed up. There's a fire happening and what do you do if you're if you're not sitting by the hatch? Yeah, no, so the problem is what they found in the sort of 70s when they were having more plane crashes, way more than we have now, is that often the plane would end up on the ground and on fire and people would just sit there and not move. And that's because we are often sort of hardwired, particularly in really unfamiliar life or death situations, to just kind of shut down or play dead, right? And it's never, it's not always a bad idea, <laughs> uh, but... In that case, it's a very bad idea. And we haven't really evolved for that kind of experience. So, okay, well, what then? Um, well, what they found is the firefighters would get on the plane, put out the fire, and they'd find people just, you know, dead with their hands crossed on their laps. They haven't unbuckled their seatbelts. So that's very worrying. Um, but, you know, the cool thing about emergency responder type people is they're not like, they don't spend a huge amount of time just bemoaning uh, humans, they actually try to come up with ways to deal with humans. And so one of the things that the people who study plane crashes learn is that if you give people aggressive commands, 
in a kind of extreme, unfamiliar situation, they will be remarkably compliant. So, well, yeah, you, yeah. you mentioned in the World Trade Center, um, there was a guy, I forget his name, he worked at Morgan Stanley. Rick Rescorla, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, he, and whenever he said something like, like when something happened, he said, okay, everybody get on the ground. Everybody did. And he's like, okay, we're going to go to this other stairwell. Uh, everybody did. Why do you think, who, what type of people become the leader and what type of people become compliant and what type of people remain forever in denial? <laughs> Sometimes it's the wrong people who become the leader, right? If they don't actually have knowledge and they lead you right into death's door. And often you don't know, right? Like to be fair, in most really intense disasters, there's no true north. You don't know which way to go. But um, one thing that we know from the research is that it, it is very context specific. So if you have a job in a place, if you're working in a movie theater, say, and it catches on fire, you will tend to take more initiative and lead as opposed to if you're an audience member or a plane passenger. When you're in a passive role before the disaster strikes, it tends to influence your behavior in the disaster, right? Um, and then there are other people who seem to perform extremely well, even if they were in a passive role. And that often, I mean, there's not, it's hard to research, right? But anecdotally, what I found is that often were people who had been in another disaster in the past or had had, you know, realistic simulation training, either with the military or some other profession. So they kind of knew that they had to push through the immediate phase of denial and take action and uh, had trained for that realistically. So it's easier, even if it's a different event. So like if a retired pilot was in the, was a passenger on a plane, so he's not an active participant, he's probably more likely to be more active. Yeah, yeah. And there's a sense of agency, right? Because you kind of know how a plane works and you know what's supposed to happen and not supposed to happen. And so that that that's kind of that sweet spot of experience, familiarity, but also an awareness that something is truly wrong and that you should have a bias for action. So, so maybe like tell some stories from some of the disasters, some of the stories in the book, for instance, like what's, what's some disasters where the actions of people astonished you? Uh, so many. I mean, you know, one of the big surprises from the 9-11 evacuation was that people took twice as long to descend each staircase as the safety engineers had predicted for the World Trade Center. So people move very slowly in disasters. Part of that is that denial phase. Like it takes a while. I think on average, it took people six minutes to decide to evacuate and begin evacuating the World Trade Center. Some of that was like because they were being told by the Port Authority to stay put. But even in other cases, uh, there's typically a delay period where you just sort of, you know, don't want to believe what's happening. And I know I'm I'm totally susceptible to that as well, even though I talked about how I was hypervigilant with the fireworks display. Uh, in other cases, like with the pandemic, it took me longer than I would have liked to have admitted to accept that this was like, this was real and this wasn't going away in two weeks, you know? So you try to fit everything that happens to you into uh, scripts and boxes for things that have happened to you before. And if you have no training or experience with something, you're going to try to sort of, you're going to delay, right? So um, one of the people I followed for the book is a woman named Elia Zdenio, who worked um, in the World Trade Center for many, many years. And when um, the t first tower was hit, you know, she... Uh, she knew something was up. I mean, it was not a subtle impact. 
but she found herself really not wanting to leave her cubicle. And she sort of walked around in circles for a while. She picked up a book that maybe she could read. Like you, you often see on plane crashes, people will automatically, so the plane's on fire, on the ground, you need to evacuate. People will go for their overhead baggage. Um, you sort of do things that you're used to doing because that's what's comfortable and that's what your brain is familiar with. Very hard to think in a disaster. <laughs> so that, so Elia finally did, um, she worked for the Port Authority as it happens, and she finally did um, leave and begin evacuating. And again, people went very slowly, and that's partly because people were so polite. Like, this is another surprise, is that people tend to be much more civil and polite and sociable than they are in everyday life. And that's- I guess because it's a bonding experience. They're all going through something together. Yeah, there's a shared sense of camaraderie, but also you really do need each other in a way that you don't, uh, you know, at rush hour on the freeway. So there's a sort of evolutionary evolutionary uh, tendency to want to stick together in groups, which can be good if your group is made, has some wisdom and insight about the situation, can be bad if not. Um, but Elia, you know, what she told me was that she wanted nothing so much as to just stay in her cubicle. But luckily... Someone recommended that that she leave. People were evacuating. She started walking. Everybody was super polite. People were passing water bottles up to the firefighters, and everybody would move over if someone was injured so they could go down uh, in front of them, and things were very quiet in the stairwells. So this is, this is um, an example of how people actually behave in disasters, and that's very different, right, from what we might expect based on on movies and 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 often how people plan for disasters so um in real life the fifteen thousand people who got out of the trade center that day took about a minute per floor to descend according to the federal investigation so now when i go to skyscrapers i know okay if i'm on the 22nd floor it's gonna take me at least you know 22 minutes um to get out of this place well a a couple questions about her story so uh you you know she took some time to to react but the port authority itself was saying everybody stay still don't leave why were they saying that i mean i actually i was actually at the world trade center that day but i had just left i had oh, bre- wow. there was a dean and deluca at, yes. at the first floor i had breakfast and i was leaving and i was a few blocks away and when i saw it happen and i even was in denial for some reason my brain was telling me oh this plane was on remote control, Mm -hmm. so there was nobody in the plane, and it's too early for anybody to have been in the World Trade Center, even though it was like 8.45 a.m. So I could see how people could get into denial, but why were, why, but but it was clear that it was a huge, massive explosion. I had never seen anything like it. Hmm. And why do you think people were in denial that this is at least deserves some reaction? Yeah, no, I remember I, I lived in Manhattan at the time, and so I just saw it on the on TV at first, and you saw the first plane hit. And I had the same, you know, I came up with a very convincing narrative that it was a small plane that had, you know, crashed into the Trade Center. Um, and and it was only when the second one hit that you're like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, but even then, it sort up. of took a while to process. And that was the same thing was happening in the in the stairwell. I mean, I think it depends on your experience. Like if you've lived in a war zone, maybe you would have been faster, right? I don't know. It depends on the kind of war. It depends on your narrative about the war. But, you know, because thankfully for us, most Americans had not experienced 
planes crashing into towers on purpose uh, in recent memory, then, you know, it's totally normal to try to fit that into your pre-existing naratives, right? Because that's how we I mean, that's how we process everything that happens to us all day long. And it takes a while, you know, and that's a big challenge for, you know, often emergency plans are written uh, because in a way they expect the public to panic. But what I found is that usually it's the opposite problem. Usually it's like what the airlines call negative panic, which is not reacting. Well, and, and you also mentioned how uh, in, in these disaster situations, it's actually better slower is faster. So if everyone panics, then nobody gets out. There's too many people are jumping over each other and trying to squeeze through a small door. And, but do people instinctively know that? Like that slower is faster in these situations? Like to be orderly is a better approach? Maybe, right? Because you see that civility and people being like social and wanting to stay in groups. Um, So there's some of that is a survival tactic, right? Because you don't want to be alone in these situations. Um, rarely do people like panic as in, you know, antisocial punching each other out kind of behavior. That's really hard to find. Like you, you really have to look hard to find examples of that in real life. But sometimes we in the media say people panicked. And what we mean is, you know, they went and bought toilet paper when there was no shortage, you know, and that's not kind of, kind of a loose use of the word, (laughs) but uh, on average, you know, people are, people tend to move slowly. Sometimes that is good, to your point, because you're trying to collect information, and sometimes it is too slow. Um, so it's it's hard because it depends on the situation. But in, in general, my, my advice to people is assume you're going to be in denial and notice when that happens and push through it because that can take a long time. I like that assume you will be in denial. Like it's kind of, it's kind of and you, you mentioned uh, – Kahneman and Kahneman and Tversky and their cognitive biases. And Kahneman's point is you can't avoid cognitive biases. But I always wonder if you're aware of cognitive biases, maybe you could move the needle a little bit. Yeah, right. I know there's debate about this, like right now with like implicit bias, like if you're aware of bias, it doesn't actually seem to change any behavior. I think it really depends on the kind of cognitive bias, right? Like if there's certain things you're aware of, um, and it's going to make a huge difference just because you're noticing it. And there's other things that are so wired that it's going to be harder. You have to sort of train for it and get familiar with it. Um, so like people who study plane crashes or any disasters, they tend to do things to help their brain out just in case. And it sounds crazy, but, you know, this is <laughs> these are not normal people. So like when they check into a hotel room, they always take the stairs down the first time they leave just to see where they end up because you often will end up in like – I remember I was in Soho once at a hotel and I did this and I ended up in the kitchen and somebody wanted to search my bag before I left because they thought I worked there, you know. And uh, so uh, you you do end up in some weird places. So anytime, you know, people in the World Trade Center who knew where the stairwells were, which was like less than half of people, they're much more likely to to evacuate more quickly, right? So having something for your brain to work with is really helpful. And people who study plane crashes always count the number of rows between themselves and the exit, um, so that they could find it in the dark, which is how it usually ends up because there's so much smoke. So, so in a sense, information is power. Like if you're in any situation and you know the types of disasters that could happen, information is, is power. So if you're in a plane, you think you always think to yourself, well, a plane crash is a possibility because I'm in a plane and planes sometimes crash. But you might not think the person next to me is going to have a heart attack on this plane mm-hmm. ride. 
because that's probably relatively, I mean, that's actually probably less rare than a plane crash, but I never think the person next to me is going to have a heart attack. I do think every time there's yeah, turbulence, the plane's crashing. Yeah. So, so I, I would probably know less what to do if someone starts like squirming and grabbing their heart or whatever right. in a plane, even if it's probable that they're having a, a, a heart attack. Now, with the with the woman from the World Trade Center that you were just mentioning, I remember part of her story is she was on the ground floor and she was starting to move towards the exit, but she was slowing down even more. And another woman linked arms with her, a stranger linked arms with her and said, we've got to get out now. And what what's up with that woman who's kind of sort of a hero here? Like, what did she, did, was she looking for people to help? Why wasn't she rushing out and ignoring everyone else? Right, right. Now, what happened there is Elia, she finally goes on this odyssey to get down the stairs, and the Trade Center was complicated because there's parts at which you had to cross over to a different stairwell, and, you know, it's an ordeal. And she finally gets out, uh, and there's something called the illusion of centrality where people think it's just happening to them. So when she emerged onto the mezzanine there and realized there's like, you know, debris all over the place, bodies, every, you know, everything's crazy. She realized that this wasn't just a small event that was affecting her and the people in her stairwell. And that is like an overwhelming realization for the brain to process in that moment. So actually what happened to her is she lost her vision. Like she just couldn't see anymore. And this is not all that unusual. Usually what you get is a narrowing of your vision, kind of like you're looking out a peephole. This happens to police officers, lots of people in in life or death situations. And it's your brain trying to like limit how much information is coming at it, right? Wow. So for her, it was not great, right? To lose total vision in this situation. Um, and that's when this woman came up to her and was like, come on, let's go. And she just kept talking to her. Elliot remembers, like, this woman wouldn't shut up, is what she said. <laughs> She's just, like, talking, talking, talking. So it seemed like for her, it was comforting to kind of be someone who takes over. You know, many people who grow up with a lot of chaos, I don't, I never found this particular woman, but many people who grow up with a lot of chaos can be really good in a situation like this, right? Like, the other day I was talking to a woman who's married to a Syrian refugee, and, you know, he he's not great day-to-day about remembering to do things, but if there's a, a, if they had to, like, move overnight, he'd be amazing, you know? So there are people who can really come alive in chaos because they have experience with it and they know how important it is. And so maybe, I don't know, but maybe that was some of what was going on there. But she really did save Elliot's life most likely because uh, the tower collapsed soon after that. Yeah, and basically, I guess once the tower started collapsing, everybody in the buildings died, pretty much. I mean, there were some survivors in the rubble, but not many. Yeah, everybody in that building that that collapsed, yeah. So... um, you know, for a lot of people who died in the Trade Center, it, they were above where the planes hit. So there's really nothing they could do. So I, it's important I should have said even earlier, like a lot of this, I don't want to suggest it's up, you know, it's up to you. Like, you know, a lot of people who survive in disasters, is it's, I don't want to say it's luck because you could have designed things to make it easier to evacuate, but it's not under their control. It's not up to the individual. It's a collective issue. So if you look at like an earthquake that happens in San Francisco, tomorrow and there are no injuries the same earthquake happens in any number of 20 different countries around the world you could have hundreds of people dying right so that's about the building code and the quality of the design right so that's a that's not an individual level choice but it is a man-made disaster so this is another case where like information is power if you know oh this building is going to collapse very easily because of the building codes you would be more likely to to get out 
what's what's a case where it's not it's not the people with more information that survive, but other people have a sense of like you, you mentioned if they have past experiences, they're more likely to to survive. But that's also information is power when you've been through past experiences. What are other things can people do if they are not used to disasters? Like I've never been in a disaster, you know, I, even though I had just left the World Trade Center, I wasn't in the disaster area at the time. So I've never been in a disaster. What could I do if 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 something disastrous is happening, if there's a hurricane or a tornado or floods or crashes or whatever? Yeah, I mean, in that case, you want to know what your biggest risks are. And there are now some good sort of websites and maps that help you figure that out. So, you know, where are you right now? New York? Uh, Florida. Florida, okay. So we know it's not, you know, obviously, depending on the time of year, hurricane season would be would be one, right? Um, yeah. and, and in some ways, Florida is better at managing disasters because they've had so many, um, sort of like California, right? Um, but then there's other things that you might, you know, not worry about, right? Like wildfires, right? Depending on where you are. So, uh, if you're, are you near the coast? Yeah, I'm on an, I'm on an island. Okay. So depending on where you are, you know, tsunami, flooding, those would be things that, you know, and it's, it's actually a small amount of situational awareness can go a long way, particularly for visiting. Often it's, it's tourists who are first to evacuate when ordered to do so because they're nervous and they haven't experienced it before. But then once something happens, they can be slow because they don't know what they're doing, right, and where to go. And so that's like where you would uh, want to know how to get out of a building more than one way, right, and be sort of aware of where you are. Our brains aren't really designed to think vertically, you know, if you think about it. So when we go up in a tall building, we don't think about it as if, like imagine if that building were laid flat horizontally on the ground and you walk 20 floors, right, sideways, and there are no doors, <laughs> right? Your brain would be like, oh man, this is a long tunnel, right? Like mm. if I have to get out of here, it's going to take a while. But because it's vertical, you don't really think of it that way, you know? Um, so some of it is just being aware of where you are, how to get out, whom to trust, who's around you matters a lot. And and who who goes in denial? So you mentioned, you know, a big thing is, like you say, a lot of the people in the plane crashes, you know, had their seatbelts still on and they were burnt up. Clearly they were in denial all the way to the end. Who Who goes in denial in these situations? Yeah, I think your identity matters. Like, you know, just like in the book I just wrote on conflict, like, who you are and how you think of yourself really matters. So men are more than twice as likely as women to die during a thunderstorm, for example. Now, some of that is because men are more likely to work outside in situations that are high risk. Um, men are also way more likely to die in flooding. And again, some of that is because of their jobs, but some of it is because of overestimating their ability to drive through standing water, which is how most people die in floods, right? Um, so some of it is like sort of your identity as far as, you know, maybe you think of yourself as a great driver, or maybe you think of yourself as not wanting to look weak, or maybe you think of yourself as a protector of your family. I don't know. But that identity you have matters. Now, conversely, on, in the World Trade Center, women were twice as likely to get injured while evacuating. And it's for the most ridiculous reason. It's because they're wearing high heels, right? So they took the heels off in the stairwell, and then now they're stepping on glass and stuff like that. So, um, so it's really hard to separate out like nature, nurture as usual. But 
who you are going into the disaster, and this is particularly true for communities, like what was up with your community, its weaknesses, its dysfunctions, its strengths before the disaster is hugely important to determining what happens during and after the disaster. It it seems like this goes against a lot of stuff with evolutionary psychology. So if you're walking past a bush and you hear rustling in the bush, chances are your instinct is to run because your ancestors who survived, you know, didn't take the risk that there was a lion there. They, they assumed there was a lion there instead of just wind rustling the bush and they ran. But now it seems like we're not as a society as tuned to risk as we used to be. Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, are we not as attuned to risk or is we not attuned to the relevant risks, right? I mean, you know, there's a, there's a kind of concept in, in risk, you know, research that it's not about the odds of something happening, right? It's, it's about the odds plus a bunch of other things and including dread, which is actually a, a technical term in the research. And I think one of the best technical terms I've ever heard. And dread is, it's like all of humanity in a word. Like it represents our evolutionary fears and hopes and lessons and prejudices all in this sort of dark X factor. So I tried to, in my like, you know, nerdy way, create a sort of equation for dread to help me think about it. So it's, it's in the research, it's like six different factors create how much dread you're going to feel about a given threat. Um, and it's going to vary depending on the person, but you know, it's how uncontrollable the threat is. If it feels uncontrolled, like you have no control, right? Like a plane crash, then that's higher dread. If it feels unfamiliar, if it feels, uh, but imaginable, like if you could imagine it in your mind's eye, that is scarier. <laughs> if it feels like there's going to be a lot of suffering, right? That is more dread. Um, so cancer in that case would be create more dread than a heart attack, right? And the scale of the destruction, so the the, the loss of 100 people's lives at once is creates more dread than 100 individual deaths. Um, and then also the unfairness of the threat. So if something feels particularly unfair, that's going to increase the dread level. So there's a lot of emotion that goes into every risk calculation, um, which is sort of summed up in that word dread. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So as we're recording this, yesterday was tax day. Do you think the entire country feels dread on tax day? Because all those things apply <laughs> to taxes. Right, uncontrollability. Like, yeah, it's, uh, you can't really predict. You might owe more than you think. Uh, uh, there's a lot of suffering <laughs> involved. <laughs> there's unfairness. Uh, yeah, you could view it as unfair. Uh, so I wonder, I wonder how that, like, I wonder if, there's something that happens every April or May when taxes are due. If, you know, the stock market usually goes down a little bit during those months, but not as much this month. Hmm. But uh, it's it's interesting. So, you know, you mentioned cancer as something that provokes dread, but I I think yes, if you have like a bump and you haven't gone to the doctor yet, you might feel a sense of dread because it's unknown still. But I feel like there's a difference between let's call them static disasters and dynamic disasters. So 9-11 was a dynamic disaster. It's a sudden thing that happens and you have to react instantly. Whereas heart attacks, strokes, cancer, these are things that it's so easy to be in denial about for years. Mm -hmm. Like you could have, you, there's plenty of people who have like, you know, tumor the size of a, a, a grapefruit or whatever for years before they go to a doctor. It's easy to be in denial over these uh, more static or or longer lasting disasters. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, the human brain worries about many things before it worries about probability, right? Um, so, so there's there's a lot going on there in our in our calculations. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons the pandemic was so hard because uncertainty is just very hard on the human brain, and and having it go on that long is really hard. So, on the one hand, it's slow and static. To your point. Um, which is a little easier. There's more time to get your head around it and learn more about the threat in, in some cases. But then on the other hand, there's no time to recover from it. So what we know from the research is 
it, you can recover from almost anything, right? Depending on your support system and your health and other things. But when it's chronic like that, when it goes on for over a year, it's very hard on on humans. Like we just we have we have to have a time to recover and regroup and learn and you know <laughs> reunite. And so that that is very very challenging. And and I don't think most people even you know I'd written about pandemics before, but I, most people didn't expect something that would last this long. Well, also, like if you think about the first SARS and you think about swine flu and avian flu, there was all this news that, okay, it's swine flu is now labeled a pandemic and blah, blah, blah. But none of these things really affected us in the U.S., and so maybe we kind of assumed the same thing would happen here. Sure, right. Whereas you saw in China and other countries that had dealt with uh, big epidemics, they had a, they were much faster in sort of getting their heads around it, right? Um, did, did you feel dread at all during the beginning of COVID or, or, well, or just denial? Well, you know what's funny is I actually reached out to, I was writing some op-eds for the Post, for the Washington Post, because I had covered disasters for a long time and I was just trying to be useful and, you know, again, I, w- I think I was in a little bit of denial about the extent of it because I just really didn't want to believe <laughs> it was happening. Mm-hmm. I'm not proud of this, right? But but I knew I knew it was serious, and I was writing about it, and I reached out to Dennis Maletti, who's somebody's in the Unthinkable book, who had been a great source for me, very very funny, outspoken, patient, thoughtful expert on risk communication. And I'd interviewed him many times, right? But it had been a while since I called him. And I called him, and I was asking him, and he was really... He was much more distraught than I had ever heard him be. And this was in March of 2020, right? So this was very early. And uh, he said that he was scared. And I'd never heard him say this. This is a guy who had, you know, studied and written about and talked about like every conceivable kind of disaster all over the world. So I remember that bothering me that he said that. And I remember thinking, you know, I didn't say this, but thinking that maybe something was going on with him and he just was not, you know... (laughs) in a good place, separate from the pandemic. And I quoted him in the post story and he said some really smart things and he basically was really frustrated with the federal level of risk communication. And, um, you know, this was his life's work. So he knew that having inconsistent messaging like that early on can really can really cause a lot of suffering uh, that doesn't need to happen. Some suffering needed to happen, but not all of it. And so he was quite distraught. I quoted him saying some other things, but not that piece about being scared. And I remember asking him, are you scared that you're going to get COVID and die? Because he was older, you know? And he said, no, because I'm a human and I overestimate my ability <laughs> to survive anything, but I'm scared for the country is essentially what he said. And uh, earlier this year, 2021, about a week before he was due to get his vaccine shot, Dennis Maletti died of COVID. Wow. So it's very sad. And I wrote another piece now finally quoting him saying that he was, that he was scared, you know, and uh, it was, um, you know, he was, he was older. He had some preexisting conditions, but it was, it was really tragic because he had to spend the last year of his life watching, you know, a lot of bumbling that didn't need to be that way. It was going to be hard no matter what, but there are certain things that we could have done better. And, and some states did better than others, right? But at the national level, I think it was very painful for him. So what, what were, tell some stories of some other disasters. You have, you have so many different disasters here. 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple that aren't in the book that came to me after. As you know, like sometimes it's after you publish a book that people start give, giving you great stories. And there's there's a lot of great. Yeah, stories. I, I always write my best chapters after the book's already exactly, published. Exactly, exactly. You spend all this time trying to get the stories, and then they start coming to you. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of great stories in the book, but the one that maybe I'll share that's not in the book is um, from a, a young man who reached out to me um, named Christian who had survived the tsunami in Southeast Asia. And he was on holiday at the time in Thailand. Um, he was working in Singapore, he was an expat, and he was you know, sort of sad that he couldn't go home for, for Christmas. Um, and so he, with some friends, decided to go to this beautiful uh, remote island for a few days. And so they went and, you know, he he reached out to me because there were things that he wished he had known. And part of that was his own guilt, you know, because he felt like he could have done more. But let me just tell you the story. Um, so he, he was that morning, um, you know, getting ready. They were going to leave that day. And as he got up out of bed, the hotel room he was in, which was only on the second floor, was sort of flimsy, um, building started shaking and he knew because he had been in earthquakes before that that was an earthquake and he actually got up and went to the window to see if this if there was a tsunami coming because he had read in a comic book as a little kid and it really scared him that that earthquakes were one of the very few warnings that a tsunami might be coming and he didn't see a sort of wall of water approaching the way it had looked in the comic book or in movies. He didn't see anything. It was a beautiful, beautiful, pristine day. Everything looked normal in the ocean. So he went down to breakfast and really didn't think much about it again. Um, and then a couple hours later, he was packing his things back in his room. And he, he again heard this big crash and felt the building shake. But his brain did what we all do in these situations and tried to normalize it. He told himself that people must have, you know, dropped their their suitcases when they were checking out. Um, the lights also flickered and went off. And then when he went to wash his hands after he went to the bathroom, there was no water. And it wasn't until then that he started thinking, okay, this is not normal. And he opened the door of his hotel room, which was out on the sort of a balcony, and the water was like an inch below his door. So the, the water doesn't come in like a giant wall it just raises in a surge, right? And so, you know, he had just been going about his business, packing his bag, and this huge tsunami had come, and it was right below him. Um, so he ended up, you know, with other people as soon as the water receded, wandering around, trying to find high ground, trying to help whom they could help, and going home to Singapore like the next day and he couldn't handle it because it was such a disconnect between his life and this experience. So he went back to Thailand, created a, helped create a charity to build, help fishermen rebuild their boats. And, you know, a lot of this was a sense of trying to atone for not having evacuated the beach or realizing that this earthquake was a sign of a tsunami. And of course that's unfair, right. For him to blame himself, but that's, you know, that's understandable. And uh, the, the thing is, what he did find was that, you know, about a year later in Thailand, one night he was driving home on a pretty remote mountain road and he saw a bunch of cars pulled over and a big bus had gone over the side of this cliff and it just happened. And everybody's just sort of staring at it. People are crying for help. A lot of people had died on the bus and he did not delay. 
Like he just went into action. He started yelling at people, telling them what to do. And everybody complied because that's what people do. And they pulled people out of this, you know, wreckage. He put uh, as many people as he could into his truck and he drove to the nearest hospital, which was some distance away. And he remembers looking in his rearview mirror and seeing a chain of lights of other cars following him with other victims. And it was like the one moment of peace that he had felt in a long time because He knew that he had to have a bias for action. He knew that things could go horribly wrong in ways you didn't expect. And in this one case, he was able to do something, you know, really huge. So he he wanted to share that story to to show that this denial thing is real. The more information you have, the better, and you want to try to push through it. It's it's crazy how the brain constructs these narratives that as you say, normalize things like, oh, it's no big deal. Or this is just a small plane that hit or, you know, even when the the second World Trade Center was hit because I was on the other side, I didn't see the plane. I just saw the explosion and my brain said, and everybody was saying, oh, we're, we're under attack. And I was saying, no, no, no. It's just an explosion. It's an, a leftover explosion from the first plane now hit the second building. Like it was just, it was a cascading set of explosions. There was no other plane. And so I kept believing that until the TV said the Pentagon got hit. Mm. And uh, then I said, oh, okay, something something bad's happening. But uh, you have this one section near near the end the, in the appendix about basically how to boost your survival odds. And, uh, you know, you know, and a lot of it is about you, the first one is about you know cultivating resiliency, but it's a, it's about realizing you have agency in just about any situation, mm-hmm. like encouraging yourself to think that you have more control than you, you might think you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I think one of the hard things um, right now is that people feel like they have no autonomy or agency, partly because of the pandemic. Um, there's a lot we can't control, partly because of politics. You know, you can be super frustrated and have no no impact that you can see on, on the day-to-day basis. And so anytime you feel threatened without any sense of agency, it tends to lead to dysfunction, in my experience. And it's um, it's tricky because sometimes you really don't have much agency. And to claim otherwise is a little bit, like, delusional, right? But whenever possible, trying to figure out what you can control and, and have that kind of bias for action is super healthy, not just for surviving a you know, one in a million odds disaster, but just for your mental health, period, right? Like there's just a ton of research on that. So it's, it's really tricky right now. Like the more people are sort of conscious, you know, become more and more conscious of social injustices and and racism and uh, sexism. And that's all good. That's super important, right? To know about this and understand our history and understand bias and prejudice. And I, I wish we spent more time talking about what you can do, you know, because that sense of having no, of helplessness is really destructive um, from a mental health point of view. And so you know, I'm linking to very different things here. We're talking about plane crashes, terrorism, and now, you know, social justice. But I think there's a relationship. I don't know. What do you What yeah. do you think? Well, no, I, I definitely think so. And particularly the fact that a lot of this social injustice issues came up in the, the you know, month three or month four of the pandemic I, is probably uh, worth noting because I think people were feeling such a lack of agency 
that the fact that, oh, now they were allowed outside to, to protest and to express their anger and frustration in many different ways. There were many different types of protesters during during this and still are. I think that was, they're definitely linked. Yeah, yeah. It's like that emotion has to go somewhere, right? Yeah. So sometimes you, sometimes it goes in a productive direction and sometimes it goes in a self-destructive direction. Like it's, it's um, but it's something that I wish, you know, like, I wish there were half as much time spent, you know, covering um, how to reduce racism <laughs> as there is about how pernicious racism is. Because you can't marinate in that sense of powerlessness too long. You know, like that book, The Coddling of the American Mind that Jonathan Haidt uh, co-authored is really, uh, is really quite powerful on this is, you know, came out years ago, but it basically was like, look, everything that we know from cognitive behavioral therapy that you're not supposed to do is what we're doing, you know, like sort of feeling helpless, feeling, um, aggrieved, feeling like there's nothing you can do. Um, feeling like every feeling is legitimate, you know, not questioning feelings like those kinds of things are really really um, unhealthy for humans. So whether it's, you know, in a, a life or death situation or in a sort of collective climate of frustration, you know, we have to find ways to be constructive, not, not you know, fabricate ways to be constructive, right? Just for the sake of it, but, um, but focus as much on that as we do on the problem. And you also mentioned uh, in this list of things we could do is reducing anxiety and uh, because anxious people probably won't, you know, it's sort of obvious when you think about it that anxious people probably won't respond as well as calm people yeah. to a disaster, but it's hard to reduce anxiety. Like, how do you do it? Yeah. I mean, me people say meditation, but I, I know a lot of people who meditate and right after they're done meditating, they're just as anxious as ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people I know who do yoga are some of the most neurotic people, right? Like, <laughs> so uh, Definitely the people who do yoga. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes it's the people who need it the most who end up doing the thing. Um, so it's hard, to, it's hard to make conclusions from it. But, um, you know, one of the things that we know is really helpful with, um, anxiety in the moment. And I talk about this in The Unthinkable and I actually also talk about it in High Conflict. It sort of weirdly comes up in every book I do, but um, there's only one way in the moment to bridge your like involuntary reaction to your voluntary reactions. And that's through rhythmic, intentional breathing, which, you know, the special forces call this combat breathing, which is hilarious. Um, like there's a, there's a, have you noticed there's like this pattern where anytime people in like a super masculine profession need to do something that sounds kind of soft, they just add an adjective in front of it to make it seem okay. Like combat breathing is actually the same as like yoga and Lamaze, but it's, it's like, if you add the word combat, it's okay. And I just heard Chris Voss talk about this. He's the former FBI hostage right. negotiator and he talks about tactical empathy in sort of doing active listening, right? Because active listening sounds super soft and squishy, but tactical empathy, <laughs> yeah, that's okay, it, you know? It sounds manly Yeah, now. exactly. So whatever, whatever works for you. Uh, but, but 
combat breathing, you know, typically how it's taught is you breathe in for four beats, hold for four beats, breathe out for four beats, hold for four beats, repeat. It's like a square. So you go up for four, hold for four, down for four. And uh, I do it all the time, you know? So anytime you're under stress and you want to be able to think straight, it is the one thing that is proven to work. You know, ideally you want to have like highly realistic training for any situation you're in before you're in it, but that's not realistic, right? For most people. You, you know, that combat breathing, that's actually a yoga technique. So there's a, there's a, there's something called pranayama, which is the yoga of breathing. And that's a pranayama technique. So it's been around for thousands of years. So somehow they knew that. Yeah. Yeah. It works. It's like the only way we can kind of get access to our higher cognitive functioning. And it's true in conflict, right? It's true in an argument. It's true. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's a little late, like in the, it's a little downstream from where you'd like to intervene, but it's, it's important to have lots of tactics. And that's, that's a good one. Have you, have you used that breathing? Like, let, let's say you're in an argument or in a conflict situation, uh, you know, speaking of your last book, uh, do you suddenly take, are you aware, okay, now I have to breathe this technique and I'll bridge these parts of my brain. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where you have to practice it a lot. And Chris Voss talks about this too, about small stakes practice. Like you have to do it all the time in normal situations. And then it gets, it's really hard to do for the first time when you're like really agitated. Right. And the same is true in a disaster. <laughs> like it's hard to do that in the moment. So you want to do small stakes practice with it. So I might do it when I'm driving, you know, like if I'm getting frustrated, I might do it then. I might do it when I'm trying to, you know, argue with my kid. Or kids are great for small stakes practice uh, of most things. So wait, it's, four, it's it's four beats in, breathing in, hold, hold for, for four, four, out breathe for out four, for four, hold for, hold four. for four. Yeah, exactly. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's different so, ways to do it, but that's that's one that I find to, to work well. It, it's interesting thinking about this concept of dread again. Like I'm thinking now about my reaction to the pandemic. I was in probably total denial, maybe still am about the odds of me getting sick, even though the odds are there. And I know a lot of people who have gotten sick. I haven't gotten sick yet. So knocking on wood or knocking on glass here, I have a glass desk, but I remember there was one night in January of 2020 where I just couldn't sleep because I was in a total state of dread, not because I thought the U S would get COVID, but I saw how factories in China were closing down because of COVID. And I realized that every company in the US, their supply chain starts in China. So I thought this would shut down the US and I was obsessed that there would be tanks in the streets huh. everywhere, that it would just be the breakdown of society. And I even woke my wife up and I said, "This, we gotta order things in advance you know, anything that we need for the next year, we've got to order it now. And I didn't think that we would be shut down in the US. I didn't think COVID would hit here, but I did think that there was gonna be problems because of all these factories shut down. And that was my, that was my worst moment of dread. Wow. In January, like early. Yeah. But I wasn't worried about COVID. Yeah, yeah. I was worried about the but economic ramifications. But you could already see the chain of events that it could lead to like you, you, there are certain things that you knew well about this. And so those were the things that in your head. Yeah. Right. So, so information is, is power, but then on the illness itself, I was getting distressed that people were exaggerating the possible consequences. Yeah. Like I forget which newspaper it was, but it was a prominent newspaper that said there would be 140 million deaths from COVID because there was a 2% 
fatality rate and there's 7 billion people on the planet. So they just said 140 million people are going to die from this, which to me was an outrageous exaggeration because it doesn't follow the usual math of pandemic. So I would, I would pay attention more to those things rather than worrying about COVID. So I, I had like reverse dread. Yes, I was more angry yes. about the reporting, but I had dread about the economy because that is something I knew you more about. about. Right. And also wasn't being already covered to death, right? At that point. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, I, I agree. I did reverse dread. I like that phrase. I, I mean, I felt like, you know, extreme frustration with some of the overreaction and then some of the underreaction. And particularly in the news media, like some of the overreaction, fear-based, you know, reporting of statistics without denominators, without any perspective, that drove me insane. And I can't tell what percentage of that was because I was just 100% right. (laughs) And what percentage was because I didn't want to marinate in fear and suffering in perpetuity. Like, I just couldn't stay in that place. So whenever I saw examples of it being, it might be exaggerated or fear-mongering, it made me really angry because, you know, just mentally, I found it very hard to just stay day after day in this kind of crouch of fear. Um, and so anytime it was exaggerated, that really, really pissed me off. So yeah, there is a, there is, you know, the thing that is just, you can't get around is anytime there's a lot of uncertainty in any kind of disaster, including a pandemic. You will on some days overreact and on other days underreact. And so will everyone else, including journalists. Now there's good journalism and worse journalism. Like there are ways to be much better about dealing with that uncertainty, but that's the hard thing is like there, it's very hard to get it just right. Do you find the job of a journalist has changed in the past 10 years, 20 years, and this this goes along with hate spoke, the coddling of the American mind. Do you, you find that journalists are no longer about let's accurately report the news because now the agenda has shifted a little to, hey, we got to make sure we don't go out of business and lose all our subscribers. So what headline will, will get more people buying and what, I mean, there's always been sensationalistic journalism, even more so than there is now, but it feels like now there's different agendas necessarily that the editors have. Yeah, no, I mean, there is a change in the business model for sure, which is huge. I mean, becoming much more of an attention economy like social media platforms. Um, But there's also a change in like the power situation. Like it used to be that we journalists were the gatekeepers. Like you just, we had the microphones and you needed to go through us, right? And that's not true anymore. And sometimes uh, journalists still act like we have the microphones when we don't. Like everybody has a microphone now. And so that's a huge change. Um, And sometimes there's this belief that, you know, if we can just line up the facts, people will believe us. And, And the fact is we lost the trust of the American people a long time ago, before Trump. Major mainstream rigorous journalism outlets lost a lot of trust, rightly or wrongly, both in many cases. And so it sort of doesn't matter how many facts you 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 assemble, unfortunately. You know, there, there's a book that just came out by uh, James Lindsay and Peter Bogassian called uh, How to Have Difficult Conversations or How to Have Extreme Conversations. And it, it, I just got it the other day. And one of the first things they say is, don't, nobody's going to pay attention to facts. Don't use facts in your argument because right. no one cares right. and no one knows if you're right or wrong. So it's pointless. 
And I didn't see what their solution was. I haven't read the book yet, but I just noticed that part. And when, when made you, you made me think of it when you brought up facts that it's interesting how quickly they pointed out that facts are totally useless in these situations. Right, which is totally counter to, I mean, my whole profession was like, my whole career was based on the fact that facts were the, the currency, right? And so it's like, you know, I mean, it's mind blowing. And I don't think that journalists have fully ad ad adjusted and it is hard to know. Then, you know, what do you do then? It's funny, I was just reading this paper from the 80s on something called motivational interviewing. And the guy who, you know, came up with the idea was working with alcoholics and addicts. And it's the same thing. He starts out, he's like, you know, all the social science is super clear. Direct argumentation doesn't work and usually is counterproductive. So don't tell someone that they're an alcoholic and they need to stop drinking, right? So it was so funny to me because it was like, super clear and obvious to him, just like in that book you mentioned, <laughs> that you would never use direct argumentation to persuade. And yet, what is it we see most of the time in political posts on social media and in the news is like direct argumentation. And, and then we're like amazed that it doesn't work. So what does he suggest? Ah, so there's this thing, motivational interviewing, which I'm, I'm, I'm learning about. I, it was from Adam's, Adam Grant wrote about it in his latest book. And then it got me really curious. So I'm taking a class in it because it's so fascinating, but it's basically a way of asking questions to help people surface the ambivalence and uncertainty that they actually do mm -hmm. feel in real life about something. Like maybe they're a problem drinker, maybe they're not, you know, and helping them surface that, right? And then, you know, slowly kind of by different questions and different emphasis, helping them sort out what they want to do about it. So, you know, the best, the, the person who's most persuasive to all of us is, is ourselves, as Adam Grant says, right? So self-persuasion is by far the best way to, to convince people. But then it's like, well, how do you do that? Um, and there are lots of different techniques, but ultimately just, you know, bombarding people with facts, especially when they're already dug in, is just counterproductive. It, 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 and this all plays out on social media. Like it, 2020 was such a great example because, you know, right in, in the beginning of January, we bombed this guy in Iraq. We killed that, that general. And then suddenly everybody on my social media feeds was, they were talking as if they were generals. Like they knew everything about the Middle East and how we should attack and what was going on in the Suez Canal and this and that. Like, like people who knew nothing. And then, of course, as soon as the pandemic happened, everybody was, you know, <laughs> an epidemiologist. Right. Yeah, and so it, it, it and and nobody was ever wrong. So, <laughs> but but, and, and and it's interesting because you look at like other pandemics or serious diseases, like like polio. We never shut down the whole economy. Why didn't we feel as much dread then mm. uh, as we felt now? Mm. I guess because now we feel. Hey, we just have to shut down until it's cured because we're, we're we believe more a cure is possible. Whereas at polio, they didn't know if there was a cure or not. Right, right. Like, well, we knew less, and also we were less interconnected. Right, like we didn't have people traveling from, like, you know. I mean, right now, mm. I think it takes like five days for a for a uh, virus to go from a remote island to like major cities. Like, it's it's just a different sort of geometric <laughs> algorithm for how how these things spread. But now I'm talking like an epidemiologist, which I am not. <laughs> See how I did that? I, I actually fully owned it. Like I <laughs> said, I am a Twitter certified epidemiologist <laughs> and no one should question my credentials. <laughs> so um, I'm going to look, you know, you have one interesting thing here for avoiding uh, boosting your survival odds, which is lose weight. Which is you're just being blunt and honest, but like if you're climbing over everybody in a movie theater, better to be agile and nimble and 
and train for such a situation. Well, like with anything, again, the healthier you, healthier you are before a disaster strikes, the, the better it's going to go for you, right? Most likely. And that's true for a neighborhood, a church, a community, a country. I remember this hit home with such painful uh, uh, clarity after Hurricane Katrina. Like, New Orleans was a dysfunctional, messed up, corrupt city in many, many ways before Katrina. And you could see how much harder it was afterward as a result. So anything, anything, this is why, like, anytime, like, there's a period of calm in your life, that's a good time to get therapy. <laughs> Go that's deal with the stuff because eventually, eventually shit's going to hit the fan and that's a hard, you know, you, you can deal with it then too and you should, but the healthier you can be as a family, as a person, physically, emotionally, the more resilient you're going to be, right? And, and the same with neighborhoods, you know, we're having, thank God, we're having a little alley party in my neighborhood on Saturday evening. It's just like BYOB. And I'll tell you, I am going, you know, and even though there's going to be some tedious conversation and pleasantries with people I don't really know some of the time, it is an investment in your future sanity. Like you need to have these relationships with your neighbors because, you know, regular people are the ones who are there in disasters. It's not first responders, right? It's regular people who you work with and live with. Those are the people who are going to make all the difference as we, you know, as we keep seeing. And just for day-to-day -day conflict, it's, it's good to have those those experiences that are mostly positive and we've had too few of them lately. Yeah. And, uh, you, you mentioned that get to know your neighbors is an important technique to, to boosting your survival odds. And also I think, and you, you have a chapter on, on risk. And I think people, I think people aren't really meant to understand probability and risk. I mean, probability is a relatively recent invention in mathematics. It's like maybe 300 years old, 400 years old. And so I think people just relied more on instincts rather than calculating, you know, math, mathematical equations to determine if they should take action. And, you know, and this is the connection between, let's say the subconscious and the amygdala, which is your not subconscious. And it's kind of hard to do math equations in a disaster. Yeah, and even outside of a disaster, it's really hard. You're right. We we evolved to do many things and make rational calculations on risk is hard. We could make it easier though, right? Like, you know, I kept reminding myself during the pandemic, like what I really want is for my dad to be at the level of risk he's at driving the car <laughs> uh, day to day when it comes to getting COVID. Like how do we get those roughly? Because there's going to be some risk, right? And so there are ways to help us get better at risk calculations. And I think that's something that government could probably do much better. Um, you know, insurance companies do a lot of this, right? Like they design software to do this and often do it pretty well, you know, and it's, it's human behavior. They have to, that's their, yeah, whole, exactly. that's their whole business model. Yeah, yeah. So it can, it can be done. Those are humans, you know, <laughs> but it's like, you gotta, we gotta help ourselves get to a place where, um, you know, we build emotion into the equation as opposed to ignoring it. Yeah. So, so any other stories that stick out uh, to you that, that just as a last story uh, of something, some disaster and someone who survived it and something unusual about them? Yeah, let's see. I mean, I think one of the people you mentioned early on was Rick Rescorla. So can we go back to him? Is that all right? Yeah. Okay, so Rick yeah. Rescorla was the head of security at Morgan Stanley, which was like a city unto itself in the World Trade Center. It occupied a huge 
uh, amount of real estate. And he uh, was a Vietnam veteran and had a lot of military training. And he was frustrated because he felt like there were some obvious holes in the security and evacuation procedures of the World Trade Center. And he had actually warned the Port Authority about that before 9-11. I mean, he was just really frustrated. He felt like people weren't taking it seriously. Um, And so he started realizing that he couldn't always rely on the higher authorities in charge, which is always the case. So he decided to really deputize all the employees of Morgan Stanley. And I like this story because, you know, he didn't give up on trying to make changes. He actually, you know, made a proposal that Morgan Stanley moved to a low rise uh, in New Jersey, I believe it was. So he kept, kept pushing to make big systemic change, which is super important. But in the meantime, <laughs> uh, before that was possible, he was also popularizing the behavior that you would need to survive. And he really trusted regular schmucks like you and me to perform under stress. I am a Twitter certified <laughs> building architect of large buildings. So I'm a Twitter certified Speak schmuck. For yourself. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but he, um, that was really cool. Like he trusted people. So he did things that didn't happen almost anywhere else. Still doesn't happen in in skyscrapers. Like he would have random surprise mandatory fire drills, which, you know, you can imagine some of the high net worth traders at Morgan Stanley didn't love, right? (laughs) To have to be interrupted and walk down some stairs. Like he made people actually walk down a few flights of stairs so they could have muscle memory for what that feels like. Mm. But all of that also is giving people a sense of agency, right? Like they know where the stairs are. They know how to get down them. They know not to delay. And um, so it was very cool. Like he, he actually noticed that people were moving too slowly. And instead of just, again, bemoaning, you know, humans, he started timing them with a stopwatch and telling them, how fast they were going and urging them to go faster. And they did, <laughs> you know? So he understood though, that the risk that they're in a building, particularly a building with a hundred fl- stories, there's uh, there's a risk of evacuation. So I guess you have to understand in each situation you're in, what the risks are. So you could practice for them or at least think about them. Yeah, yeah. He understood, he could think vertically and he understood the risk of terrorism and of, and of disasters. And he had, after the 19, he was there for the 1993 bombing that uh, Ramsey Youssef did of the Trade Center that, you know, was much less of a big deal. But still, he noticed how slowly people moved in that evacuation and how there was smoke in the stairwells. It was just kind of a disaster. So that really motivated him. So he got that kind of warning and he took action. Um, so he, he the you know, one of my favorite things he did is he didn't grant exceptions. <laughs> so when I worked uh, for Time Magazine in Rockefeller Center uh, around the same time, you know, of 9-11, uh, we were told to just muster by the stairwell in case of a fire drill, right? And that's what we did. You know, we were told to wait for directions. But he, Rick, didn't believe in that. And so he knew that people had to have a bias for action and that they could be trusted with basic information. So when guests visited Morgan Stanley for training, which happened all the time, Rick made sure they knew how to get out too. So even though the odds were super slim of there being an evacuation while they were there for a two-day training, he understood that they would need the help more than anyone else because they were guests, they were unfamiliar, right? Um, and, and in fact, 
on the morning of 9-11, there were, you know, dozens of visitors there for training and they knew where the stairwell was. And people, you know, there was a Port Authority warning to stay put and everybody ignored it and then just evacuated Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's an example of how trusting the public and training them appropriately and giving them the information they need is a much, much better plan than withholding information and assuming the public will panic. So do you think disasters are personal? And what I mean by that is 9-11 was obviously this huge disaster or a plane crash is this huge disaster. But let's say you're married to an abusive alcoholic. That's also a disaster. Yeah. That's every bit as real as, you know, a flood or a fire, you know, something that something bad can happen to you. And do you think the same principles kind of apply to, to think mm-hmm. rationally? Like people will be in denial. Oh, my wife or husband is not an alcoholic, is not abusive. People people kind of go through these phases that you described. Yeah. And I, I wonder if they can be treated in the same way. Yeah, personal I like disasters. that idea of personal. I think every every disaster is personal, right? And if you if your kid gets in a car crash, that's a disaster, you know? Yeah. Um, if you get cancer, that can be a disaster, right? And and the the difference is the scale and the response of those around you and how much support you have. But each time your, you know, resilience going into it is often more important even than the threat itself, right? Depending, not always. But um, one of the things that I might... This is going to sound weird, but I was just thinking that one of the things I might actually miss about the pandemic is that sense that you don't have to pretend everything's fine. You know, some people are much more affected and some are much less, but there is this shared sense of like, let's not act like, oh, everything's great. You know, everybody's kind of being a little more real. You know, even you read these op-eds or you walk into people in the street and you see your neighbor, there's like a realness like, you know, people aren't pretending that they're great all the time. And and often when people are going through personal disasters, they're alone. You know, they're, you, they can't talk about it every time they run into their neighbor. Um, their neighbor won't want to hear it. So that that is something. It's not worth it, obviously. <laughs> but, like, it's something that is kind of unique, right? Like, you can call up anyone in the world. And on some level, there's a, a connection. Yeah. Which is also a little depressing. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So, so Amanda Ripley, this is this is such a great book, The Unthinkable: Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why. I always love your stuff. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, and I'm going to start breathing, doing combat breathing right away as soon as I get off this podcast. I always enjoy our conversations, James. Thanks for having me on. 